0: You are listening to episode 59 of the Tennis Files podcast with special guest,
1: Welcome to the Tennis Files podcast, bringing you advice from the top minds in tennis to help you improve your game. And now, here's your host, Mehrban Iranshad.
0: Hey everyone, welcome to another episode of the Tennis Files podcast. I'm so happy that you're tuning in for this episode And it's going to be uh, a lot of fun to listen to me ask questions of Gigi Fernandez, who, uh, as many of you know, is a legend in the sport. Uh, And She's won uh, so many grand slams and and titles and reached uh, the highest levels uh, of the rankings on the uh, WTA Tour in both singles and doubles. And we just talk about, um, you know, her journey uh, from growing up in uh, Puerto Rico with very uh, scant resources there. Um, to, to her uh, rise because of her self-determination um, to succeed. Uh, so it's going to be a really fun uh, show. Um, and I'm also really excited to, that uh, Gigi Fernandez is going to be on Tennis Summit 2018 as well. So that's something that uh, will be out um, probably about uh, a month or so, a little over a month from uh, the, the first publication of this episode with Gigi. Um, so we'll have the link uh, in the show notes at tennisfiles.com slash 59 for the summit when it's live. But in any case, uh, I really hope you enjoy my interview with Gigi. And without further ado, here it is. Hey, everybody. Welcome to another episode of the Tennis Files Podcast. I'm Maribon Aranchad, and today uh, it's my great honor to introduce uh, my guest, 17 uh, time Grand Slam champion, Gigi Fernandez. Uh, Gigi has done a ton in her career, uh, both during and afterwards. Uh, she has won two Australian Opens, six French Opens, four Wimbledons, and five U.S. Opens. Uh, Gigi has also won two gold medals at the 1992 and 1996 Olympics. Uh, she's achieved career-high rankings of number 17 in the world in singles and number one in the world in doubles. And Gigi was also part of the 1990 Fed Cup championship team. Uh, Gigi was also in, in, inducted into the International Tennis Hall of Fame in 2010 and she has developed the Gigi method to teach tennis players just like you how to play winning doubles. So Gigi a uh, huge welcome to the Tennis Falls podcast and it's really a, a pleasure to uh, connect and speak with you again today.
2: Oh well, no thanks for having me it's um great to be here.
0: Thanks so much Gigi and so obviously you know we mentioned, uh, how many, uh, you know, titles you've won. And I mean, my first question for you is how do you even have any room in your house to store 17 grand slam trophies and you know, the hundreds of other trophies that you've won in your lifetime?
2: Well, in the house I'm currently in, I don't, so I only have four out. Um, I have one of each in my office and the other ones are in a box in the garage (laughs) until I um, do an addition that I'm doing in the house. And then I should have room for the other ones but you know i don't think all 17 need to be out um i each mean, is a good reminder
0: nice nice you're t- too modest um and and so i'm curious obviously you've been so successful in the tennis world but uh what do you think you would have been if you didn't become a professional tennis player
2: um well some people um when i was little used to tell me that i would make a good lawyer but i think I actually would have been a doctor um there was a Doctors in my family, and I just love everything having to do with medicine. I'm really kind of into it. So, and actually, when I retired, I went back to school and I started on a pre med track, and then I pretty quickly got off that because it was going to be too long. <laughs> so,
0: wow, yeah. wow, that's really cool. Yeah. yeah, obviously, a huge commitment if you want to be uh, in the medical field, but uh, I like that you mentioned a lawyer because I'm a lawyer, so um, I think you'd make a good one too. <laughs> um,
2: I like to follow rules, so I don't think I would have been a good one. <laughs>
0: yeah, well, maybe you would have got the hang of it. <laughs> um, but yeah, it's awesome, Gigi. And so, uh, another fun question for you: What are three things that most of the world does not know about Gigi Fernandez?
2: Well, the first one is I'm a really good cook. Uh, I take after my mom, who uh, used to cook. It. Of course, you know Latin food is food is very much a part of Latin culture, so uh, I learned that from her. Um, the second one is that I'm a te- technical geek. <laughs> like I actually um, had the first computer on tour back in the nineties and I was like the resident it expert whenever anybody had trouble with their computer or they couldn't <laughs> sign on to AOL just back when you needed a phone dial in for AOL. Um, if anybody had trouble, that would come to me. Um, so I designed uh, everything at double Saw TV and all the websites I've designed and all the back ends. And I kind of, put it all together so i i have that sort of technical background um and the third uh i don't know what i want to share on that one i guess i guess that um i love boating Uh, i've always i'm a water person i am a pisces and i've always loved being in the water and being around water which is why i moved back to florida so so yeah those three
0: Awesome. That's very interesting, Gigi. Uh, and actually, you know, and obviously, you know, you're from uh Puerto Rico and you've got a great family from there. Uh what part of Puerto Rico uh you know, are you from?
2: So, I was born in San Juan, Puerto Rico. Oh, okay. And, okay. Yeah, and um I started playing tennis there when I was uh, I got my first lesson when I was 7. Um I kept asking for lessons when I was 4, 5, and 6 cuz my brothers were were older, ha- were having lessons, but I couldn't get any until I was 7. So, um so yeah that's where I started playing.
0: Uh very interesting. So were your brothers kind of um uh motivational figures for you to 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 start playing?
2: Um yeah, you know, you always look up to your older siblings and they got to go on the court and I could only be in the uh, hit against the wall, so I was always waiting for that day when I could, I could actually take a lesson and not just hit against the wall. So yeah.
0: Nice. And and so you obviously uh started when you're pretty young, but can you kind of talk about your very first memories of your your first tennis tournament?
2: Yeah, the first match I played I lost six oh six oh and I'll never forget it. <laughs> mm. Wow. So it's been uphill since then, fortunately.
0: Wow and and I mean what was your feeling you know when you when you lost like that cuz most people uh you know their very first experience kind of determines what happens with it you know if you have a bad loss in a the sport then you might just decide that it's not for you and you quit immediately but what were you feeling like after that uh that it was, loss
2: It was probably 50 years ago so I don't quite remember but I I remember that the girl was several years older than me because mm. Back in the day, there was no 10 and unders. 10 and unders is fairly new. Mm. There was 12 and unders, and I was seven. So I was playing with a 12-year-old. So I don't think I was too discouraged um, just for that reason. I mean, she was probably twice my size. (laughs) So, um, But I'm sure I got my vengeance on her a couple of years later because I ended up being number one in Puerto Rico in every category and two either the two or three categories above so i was number one like the when i was 12 i was one in 12 14s and 16s so i'm sure at some point i got my revenge
0: <laughs> yeah i'm pretty she pretty pretty much beat everybody Gigi. so that's awesome and and so um you know talking about your uh, your junior career now where did you uh train as a junior
2: so i didn't really train i mean that's kind of i had this really strange path to the pros because there was no real coaches in Puerto Rico that um that knew actually there was one coach that knew what he was doing and he refused to teach me. His name was Welby Van Horn. He taught Charlie Passerel and some other Puerto Rican kind of greats of that era, but he would not teach girls. Um hmm. he would not teach girls and he he and they also back in the day um back in Puerto Rico people thought girls were too weak to hit hit topspin. Hmm. So everything I taught I would learn was uh flat and slice, um with a wooden racket. So um so yeah, I didn't really train. I just kind of went out and hit hit around with my friends. Um, and it was not really till I went to college that I had what I call my first true training experience, where I had to actually play every day of my life for you know five days in a row. And I just never did that growing up. So, so um, yeah, I was very lucky that I got recruited to go to college because otherwise, I don't know where I would have ended up.
0: Yeah, I mean, wow, that's amazing, Gigi. And obviously, we'll talk about your experiences at uh, Clemson a little, a little later. But um, yeah, I mean, like, so, so what exactly allowed you to rise above your peers? Because basically, from what you just said, you you really had very few resources. Like, how did you elevate yourself above your peers?
2: So I was gifted with incredible hand-eye coordination. Um and I always understood doubles and I always, I've always been an aggressive net player. So when I was 12, I made the finals of the Puerto Rican national championship in the adult Mm -hmm. division, Um, you know, and I also would come to the, I think what the, the the key was that the the Puerto Rico Tennis Association was part of the United States Tennis Association. Mm -hmm. So I was able to play national tournaments in the US. So I would come to the US in the summer and play the clay court nationals, the hard court nationals, et cetera. And then that's where a coach found me. So, uh, you know, Clemson coach offered me a scholarship and that's, you know, sort of my stroke of luck, if you say, if you will.
0: Wow. That's amazing. And so I'm just curious, like with that connection with USCA, did you ever attend any sort of like training camps in the USA or at the national tennis center?
2: No, well, the National Tennis Center did not exist back then. There was no organized um, mechanism for players to train. This is, like, something fairly new. So what we did have a junior – uh, I want to say it was a junior pickup team, but I was never good enough to make that team. Um, so I was not really in the radar. And then also remember that Puerto Rico back then still had um, – even though we were part of the United States, Puerto Rico has sports sovereignty. So actually in 1984, I played in the Olympics for Puerto Rico. So it's kind of strange that we're all U.S. citizens, but you can play for either. So so it's nice to have the USDA help, but it was it would only help me so much because they knew that I was going to go play for a different country. Wow. Or, or, or in the end, I ended up deciding to play for Puerto Rico, I mean, for the United States, which is where I won my two gold medals. But in the meantime, it was sort of, a little bit shoulder's length.
0: Wow. And, and so, I mean, with all the, you know, I guess negative, um, the negative aspect of, uh, you know, coaches not wanting to coach uh, females. I mean, how did you kind of not let that overcome, you know, your, uh, your, your drive to succeed?
2: Well You know, I, I kind of had a chip on my shoulder a little bit. And if anybody told me that I couldn't do something, I was going to prove them wrong. So, I think it sort of became my life's mission to prove him wrong. And I did in a big way. <laughs> yeah. So, you know, so you use that as motivation to um, to get better. And, not, and this is not just a good tennis lesson, but it's a good life lesson. Like, don't ever let anybody tell you you can't do something. Because if you set your heart to it and you set your mind to it and you set your goals and you work ultra, ultra hard, anybody can achieve anything. And I'm a firm believer in that.
0: I love that, uh, Gigi. It's coming from a t- seventeen-time Grand Slam champion, so uh, great, great advice, very inspiring. And speaking of inspiration, um, you know, in addition to, I, I suppose, your brothers, who were your biggest role models when you were growing up in tennis?
2: You know, it's really hard because there I didn't really have role models because there was no Hispanic or Latin women that played professional tennis. Like I, girls growing up in Puerto Rico, girls did not play sports. Um, there's no professional athlete in Puerto Rico or even a high level athlete that I could say I want to be like her. Um, I'm the first prof- female professional athlete in Puerto Rico. Um, so in a way I had to like blaze my own trail because there was no trail that I could say I'm going to follow this path and it's going to get me there. Um, you know, Maria Bueno was really the only Hispanic, um, that I knew of. Uh, or I that I now now know of, but at the time I didn't really even know that who who she was. She was, you know, back in the day of limited uh, in, no internet, limited communication, and, you know, no um, no social media, or it's very hard to keep track of the people that came before us. It's much easier for players now to uh, honor the history because it's all right there for them to read about. But back then it was not that simple. So, I really didn't have role models, is the answer to the the question. I sort of went at it blindly, uh, led the way. So, fortunately, uh, I made some good choices along the way and I had some good help. Um, Once I moved to the US, I had some good coaches and um, good mentors, and they helped me out get to where I I got.
0: Yeah, I mean, that's really incredible because, you know, we should all be grateful in this era that, like you mentioned, we have so many more. Resources, you know, the internet, social media. I mean, Gigi, basically, you just um, were very self-driven and competitive, and just uh, blaze your own path, uh, even without, you know, any sort of really like mentorship or anything like that, for the most part, um, or role model. So that's incredible. And so, also, just curious um, about um, your most memorable experience or win or anything like that as a junior.
2: Yeah, I have a good one. So. When I was um, 12, or I don't know how old I was, but it was a 12-and-under um, junior play court doubles finals. I made mean the finals, and I was playing with Susan Mascaren, who was the number one singles player in the country, hmm. and we're playing against Andrea Yeager, who you might know, um, and Beverly Bose. And this is 12-and-under tennis, right? So the three of them are on the baseline hitting moon balls, and I'm at the net, like, poaching. I'm serving and volleying. I'm trying to cut off every overhead out of the air that I can. Um, and Susan Mascarin's mom, who was sitting with my, my mom watching the match said to my mom, Oh, poor Gigi. She doesn't know how to play doubles. We're going to have to bring again <laughs> and teach her how. <laughs> oh my so God. mom just quiet and she told me the story and, and she never forgot that story. And when I won my first US Open, my mom caught the newspaper article and emailed it to Mascaren and with a note saying, I guess she learned how to play doubles. <laughs> oh my gosh. So, yeah,
0: I was playing uh, adult doubles already at 12 and on there. So, man, that is so hilarious. Um, cause obviously you are the master of doubles, uh, you know, one of the greatest ever, uh, at that. And, uh, but it, you know, I mean, nowadays it's the opposite. Obviously, if somebody sees people at the baseline, especially in men's doubles, they're, they're going to tell you what the heck are you doing. So you're definitely uh-huh. advanced in your time. So that's fantastic. So, and obviously we mentioned Clemson a couple of times. Um, what made you specifically decide to play at Clemson? I mean, I know you mentioned that you were recruited, but were there other schools uh, involved that you were thinking about attending as well?
2: Yeah, yeah, there was um, about three or four um, schools that were after me or calling me or offering me scholarships. And in the end, I'll tell you the reason that I went to Clemson is because they wanted me more. Like that guy called me, that girl called me every single day for like it seemed like a month, and finally I was like, all right, just get off my back. I'll come to <laughs> Clemson. <laughs> and I had not visited Clemson. Um, and I was a, a bit of a cult- culture shock when I got there because, you know, I'm from Puerto Rico and I had a very strong accent and I had a hard time understanding their accent and they had a hard time understanding mine. So, um, but yeah, it was a good year. Uh, the person that recruited me ended up leaving and the guy who became the coach, Andy Johnston was ve- really very helpful in in my development because he took this raw talent that you know had never really trained, and um, helped me make the finals of the NCAA's as a freshman. Um, so yeah, it was it was a good year. You know, I, I improved. That was probably the biggest year of improvement of my life. when, when you look at where I started, when I where I ended up. But, um, and then after that, it was. Um, the, the decision to turn pro after making the finals of lancino lays the girl that i lost to was 27th in the world beth Herr, and i lost 76 in the third i had match points wow. okay. so it was kind of time i took the fall off and i was con- contemplating going back after the fall but after the fall i was ranked 83rd in the world in singles wow. and i don't remember what i was ranked in doubles but it was probably somewhere in the top 30 um so it was time um so i didn't go back and and uh, that was sad. But however, the first thing that I did when I retired was go back and get my degree because education has always been really important to me and in my family. My my grandmother was the first female dentist in Puerto Rico, right. and, and my dad was a doctor, and my paternal maternal grandfather was a doctor. So um, all my brothers and sisters have uh, advanced degrees. So the joke in my family when I was out, you know, jet setting and being professional tennis player and having this glamorous life was that I was just another college dropout. <laughs> so, so I had to go back and finish uh, as soon as I could when I retired. Well,
0: wow, I mean, it's very impressive and kudos to you and your family. a uh, very high performing, uh, group there, obviously. And so you mentioned, um, that perhaps your time at Clemson afforded you the biggest improvements in your game. So just want to dig a little deeper into that and, and ask you, you know, what aspect of your game improved the most and, you know, how, what specifically improved within that?
2: So when I got to Clemson, like I mentioned, I had a, I had a continental grip. Um so I had a slice forehand, a slice backhand, you know, continental grip on the serve and on the volleys had one grip. So the first thing that I learned that I started to learn to do was hit topspin on the forehand. So I started to move my grip over a little bit and all same thing with the backhand. Um I learned um a topspin actually I learned anything other than a slice backhand because with the forehand I could hit it flat when I got to to um Clemson. I, I didn't really have extreme topspin. I could hit pretty flat but with the backhand all i ever did was hit it hit slice so in college in the first you know two or three years on tour i learned how to hit topspin on the backhand um and you know in the end my backhand if for people who saw me play my backhand was my biggest weapon in the return and i played the ad side so i was always hitting and i had a pretty good one handed backhand so you know nowadays that's impossible nowadays if you uh don't go to on tour with a fully developed game you have no chance you have to have no, we no like wild weaknesses, otherwise, they'll get exploited and and uh, you don't have a chance. But yeah, that the te- learning to hit that topspin backhand was probably the biggest change, the biggest um benefit, I guess, to my game because no longer could people just attack my backhand and get away with it.
0: Yeah, it's very forward thinking by you and your coach. And I'm curious too, I mean, obviously it's not very easy to switch your grip and learn, you know, these strokes after you've been uh, hitting with Continental for so long. So, I mean, how long did it take you to, to change that in the face, especially of uh, competition in college and the pros and stuff?
2: So it was a very gradual change and it took my whole life. I mean, I, I'm still switching my grip over to Mark West on the forehand. I, I feel like I'm switching it. I stopped switching it maybe 10 years ago. But um, but it was just like a very gradual minute change and that's my advice to anybody listening if you're gonna go through a grip change that you need to make it very minimal if you're competing because it's very hard to compete uh with a new grip so so if you go little by little by little it almost will feel like you're not changing anything because it's such a minute change but over time you know you, you can have you know you can go from continental to west uh, semi-western um you know in a period of maybe two years if you know, or or more I mean I don't know it felt like I'd, I was always kind of adjusting it and one thing that pro I don't know whether other pros do this or not but I always would adjust my grips based on the surface and I think pros probably do this a little bit um you know we had we adjust our ground strokes based on the surface um so if you're on clay I would be a little bit more over because you hit more higher balls and if I was on grass then I would go a little bit less um, on the grip so so yeah that's probably Maybe something not a lot of people have heard, but um, it definitely goes on.
0: Yeah, that's a really smart approach, Gigi, and and pretty much everything, really just the gradual changes. Because if you try to just fully switch, um, you know, you might get frustrated and then just uh, go back to your old ways. So that's fantastic advice for everybody listening. Uh, Also curious about, I mean, you mentioned that. The uh, girl who you played in the finals and pretty much beat, you know, almost beat was around twenty-seven in the world or so, and you yeah. were you were already eighty-some. Uh, no, I
2: wasn't, I wasn't ranked yet. She, so back then college players had had pro rankings. This is in the early eighties. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I did I was not ranked. I never play a, played played it. The first time I played a professional tournament was the year the year after I or the summer after I played my freshman year. So, right.
0: Gotcha. Okay. Yeah. Cause I was just a little bit confused because usually like, well, the nowadays, like usually the, even the top players don't even have like ATP rankings. Maybe they'll be in the few hundreds. So that's why I was curious how this girl could be in like the twenties yeah. already.
2: <laughs> yeah, no, she was good. And she actually made that year. She went to Wimbledon. So like we played our finals in May and then in uh, June, July, she was in Wimbledon and she made the round of 16 and lost to Billie Jean King. Um, and it was a really tight match. I was televised. So I remember watching her thinking, man, I almost beat that girl. And she's playing fourth round at Wimbledon. So maybe I have a, a shot here. <laughs> so, yeah.
0: yeah, I think you're more than ready if you do that well. Um, yeah. and so this may be a really tough question because you won so many of them, but, uh, Gigi, wh- which of the grand slams that you won, uh, uh, was the most memorable to you?
2: Um, boy, that's tough. I mean, I would have to say the first one, um, and I won that with Robin White. And we were, if we were seated, we were not top eight. We might have been seated, you know, 15 or 16. Um, we had no business winning it and no like thought that we would ever win it going into it. And in fact, I was almost ready to quit tennis because I was not doing well, I was, um, not enjoying it. And this was 88, so I've been playing for five years. Um, and, you know, what? sometimes people don't understand the 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 good news and the bad news of having really successful junior careers. Well, the good news is you're a good player and you think you can go on tour. The bad news is I had no coping skills for losing. Like I didn't rarely lost. I, you know, I was said earlier in Puerto Rico, I was number one in my category and the two above. Of um, then I went to college and I played number two on my team and I lost two matches all year. And then I made the finals on the NCAAs. So I lose maybe two or three times a year. Growing up, and then I turned pro, and I lose, I lost every single week, and that was like I didn't know how to I didn't know how to handle losing, and it started, you know, it affects your you, you let it affect your self worth and how you feel about yourself, and um, you know, and I started overeating and doing all these bad things, um, but really had no coping skills for losing. So um, so when we went into this U.S. Open in '88, I had just told my agent that I was going to quit and he wanted me to go see jim lair which i did and he changed my life because he taught me how to um change my thoughts basically and what he asked me to do was he asked me if i knew how to act and i said well i don't know if i'm not no academy award winner but i can give it a try and uh he wanted me to act like i was having fun the first match before i went out and he's like you and i are gonna know that you're hating tennis and you want to quit and you're burnt out and it's not for you and all that but um let's just pretend like you're having fun i was like all right i'll, I'll try so play the first match and one really tight I like might have been six four in the third um and i came out of the court and he's like did you have fun and i was like no i hated it it was i just i was so stressful and i just don't want to be out here and so we continued going through the rounds and you know we got to the quarters and i came off the court he's like you're having fun i'm like yeah maybe a little bit mm-hmm. and then semifinals we beat Martina Navratilova and Pam Shriver on, on the Grandstand Court, and it was packed. It was like not one seat open. And when I came off that match, and we beat him in three sets, and he asked me if I was having fun, and I was like, "Yeah, now I'm having fun." <laughs> the finals of the U.S. Open, and we ended up winning it. So, so I think for for the reason that it kept me in the game it's probably the most memorable or the most important um, to me.
0: Yeah, that's that's incredible. And I, I'm just looking at the draw now, and and you're you guys were the eighth seed, um, and, and you did some big time damage, obviously, and won it. So that's incredible. Um, and you know, I was going to ask you about you know what was maybe your lowest point in in your pro career, but I mean, would you say that what you just described was it, or was there even a, a tougher time? No, that
2: was it. That was pretty much it. I mean, because the other times. I had some tough times in singles, but my doubles, from that point on, my doubles was always pretty good. So I always had that to fall back on. But, I mean, before that, I was seriously considering quitting. So, yeah, that would have to be it.
0: Wow, that's, that's pretty incredible. And uh, kudos to you for coming back from that. Um, and so I guess if there was one takeaway that Jim gave you, I mean, what what would it be? Because I, I, from what I heard, it was you know, trying to just, uh, act differently and change your mindset. But uh, is there any specific, uh, you know, thing that you, you always carry with you, uh, like, uh, well, throughout your career at least?
2: Well, it was, it did not come from Jim, but, but there was one quote that, um, also changed, um, my approach at Grand Slams and, and the quote is detached from the outcome. Um, this quote was delivered to me by, I had a mental, a guy who used to travel with me and help me with, with the mental part. Um, and it was the 1992 Wimbledon final. And I had not yet won Wimbledon. Um, I had lost in the finals in 91, 6-4 in the third. Um, and we were playing in the finals. And we were down uh, 4-1, two breaks when it started to rain. Uh, so he came out. And, you know, He came to the locker room. And he said to me, you have to detach from the outcome. And I was like, what does that even mean? <laughs> like, how do you do that? It's Wimbledon final. It's impossible. He's like, well, if you don't do it, you're going to lose because you stink right now. So somehow I – he's like, you have to pretend. You have to not care whether you win or lose. You have to have no emotion about it. If you win, it's the same. If you lose, it's the same. All you have to do is go play go play tennis. So somehow I did that, and we lost one more game. We, lost six, we won 6-4, six, 6-1. Six, so detached from the outcome was my career motto. Like I said that to myself a million times before big matches, before big returns, before other changeovers. All the time I
0: was telling myself that. Gotcha, Gigi. And so, I mean, obviously you said that you just repeated it to yourself. But, I mean, was that really, like, all it took? Or was there any extra training besides that, uh, supplementary training, to get yourself to not think about the outcome? Because, like you said, it is really tough.
2: (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, no, absolutely. So what the other thing I did in 92 was to learn how to meditate. And that also was very monumental for me because I'm I'm very emotional – uh, very passionate player um, and I would have a hard time controlling my emotions during a match and the act of meditate meditating taught me how to change one thought for another without judgment or emotion so when you're meditating your your mind constantly wanders to other things and you have to bring it back to your mantra or to your breathing without judgment or emotion without getting that yourself for um, for letting your mind wander so how that would translate into a match is s- simply that I would if I would have a thought that it was non-productive or I didn't need to have, then I would just bring it back to, okay, I gotta win the, I gotta win the next point. And it basically is a skill that I developed because I was not born mentally tough. I was um, actually quite the opposite. I used to break ra- so many rackets, I can't even tell you, and how many rackets I've broken in my life. And um, I used to pay my fines to the WTA before the year started. <laughs> I would just send them money, and I would say, "Okay, here's my money for my fines. Let me know when I owe you more so so yeah the so I, being able to control my my mind and my thoughts um was was the key, and you know, and I encourage anybody out there to learn how to meditate it's, it's, it' it's only takes twenty minutes out of your life um a day, and it's really still useful to this day It's still a very valuable lesson that I learned so
0: yeah. Yeah. That's wonderful. GJ. I appreciate you mentioning, uh, meditating. I mean, I actually meditate every single morning for between, between 10 to 20 minutes, depending on how much time I have. And I, uh, you know, I value it so much that I was actually at a, a training for work the other day and they said to mention two interesting things about you. And my second one was that I, I said that, oh, I, I love to meditate and I was hoping that it would actually impact somebody. And at the end of the training, somebody came up to me and said, oh, I, I heard that you say that you meditate. And, and so we started talking about it. So I was really happy that, you know, somebody was interested. But I really encourage everybody to try to meditate. Uh, even just a few minutes a day can really impact uh, your life. So, um, yeah. And and so, obviously, um, you know... The the game always evolves and things like that. And I was just wondering if you you have observed any changes in doubles uh from when you played it to today.
2: Yeah, well there's definitely um less less net play. A lot of people staying back, the ground strokes, the technology has allowed the groundstrokers to be good at doubles. You know, in my era if you were not good at net, you did not win. You could be in the baseline all you want, but you were not gonna penetrate Uh, You weren't going to penetrate the wall of the net. And now with the technology, um, that's not so. So, uh, However, even though people are staying back, uh, the statistics show that the majority of the points are still either won by errors or by the person at the net. So from the 2015 Australian Open, uh, 2015 men's and women's, the entire doubles draw, 60% of the points ended in an error. And of the 40% of the points that were winners, 3% were won by the baseliner. Hmm. So don't be fooled. I want players listening not to be fooled into thinking that playing from the baseline is what the pros are doing. Because what they're doing is they're setting up the net player to put it away. They're not trying to hit winners from back there. Yeah, sure. And then the other way that I, I, I think significantly has changed the game is from from back when I was playing, with, with oh, when I started rather, with wooden rackets and metal rackets, Where everybody hit the ball flat, nobody could really hit topspin or cross court, and I think this whole concept of following the ball and moving with your opponent came from that. Because when when you could only hit the ball flat, your your choices were to hit down the line or through the middle. But once everybody, you know, got once the technology advanced and everybody got better rackets and better strings, and everybody can hit a ball cross court, everybody can hit the cross court winner. So, um, so I think we, this following the ball concept that I'm, that I talk about a lot or not following the ball concept, uh, I think comes from, from your wooden racket days where, like I said, people would have to shift over to cover the downline shot because that's what people would hit, but now, but not anymore. So I think people, um, when they hear me say I don't teach, follow the ball, they're, some, some people, even the other day, I was at a conference with Stan Smith, and I I was asked, what's the number one advice you give professional or you give amateurs? And I said, don't follow the ball. And he looked at me like I was from outer space. it's like, yeah, because he also learned how to play with the wooden racket. And he, he never had opponents that could just rip the ball cross court for a winner. So anyway, that's kind of, I went on a tangent, but.
0: <laughs> no, that's great. I mean, awesome uh, observations. Appreciate that. Um, very high level. And so. You know, obviously, GG. You out of all the Grand Slams that you've won, and number one rankings, the gold medals, Fed Cup victories, and and all the other titles, what do you consider your most important accomplishment to you uh, in your pro career?
2: Uh, I think winning the first gold medal, um, and that's because the Olympics are universal. I mean, everybody in the world knows what the Olympics are, and you know, I could come home. Uh, I could come home in a summer where I'd won the French women the U.S. Open, and nobody would know. But the year I came home with one Olympic gold medal, everybody knew. And everybody would stop me in the streets and congratulate me and stop me at the restaurants and want my autograph. So, um, so yeah, it was definitely winning the, the first gold medal.
0: Yeah, I mean, just such an incredible experience and, you know, doing it for your country as well is even more meaningful Um, just wondering if maybe you can give us a couple insights of you know how you felt you know at the like playing at the Olympics and how it may be different from uh, you know regular tour level matches and Grand Slams
2: Um, yeah I mean playing for your country is pretty special just being picked uh, is pretty cool The the level of stress and pressure playing for your country is like quadrupled I mean you feel this incredible sense of responsibility and um and I think maybe why I played some of my best matches when I was representing my country is because I really felt like I had to behave I couldn't act up I I couldn't tank I couldn't give up I had to give it I had to give it my all because it was such a I was I felt so responsible that I'd been picked so um so yeah it's pretty cool it's pretty cool to represent your country
0: for sure gg and you know, obviously in, in researching you know, more of your background, uh, you know, I, I realized that you, you won at least one Grand Slam title from every year from 1988 to 1997, except for 1989, uh, which is incredible. And also for three straight years, you won three, uh, three Grand Slam, uh, titles as well in the same year from, uh, 1992 to 1994. So, I mean, this is obviously amazing, and I wanted to ask you how you were able to keep up this world class level of consistency and winning through all those years.
2: Well, that's a good question. You know, when you when you're going through it, you're not thinking about, uh, oh my god, I've you know I've made three this year, I made two this year. You just oh, you're just kind of trying to win the next one, you know, and you're trying to win the next one, and you're trying to win the next one. So I think when you look back and you compile it you're then maybe you can be impressed but while it's happening you're we just get so focused on the next one you know so after i won after i went around slam i was immediately focusing on trying to win the next one um so so i mean i had good partners 14 out of the 17 um were with natasha um and that was in a five-year span that we won those 14 so that was a pretty good clip um and we just clicked. I mean, I don't know. People ask me all the time to try to explain our partnership. And it's st- still hard to explain because, you know, at the time, those players played singles. I mean, singles players played doubles. So Novak Djokovic, Shriver, Novotna, Sanchez, even Steffi Graf and uh, Sabatini, uh, Alt, Martina Hingis, Lindsey Davenport. These are all number one, number two, number three singles players. Uh, Natasha and I were... So I was somewhere in the thirties most of my career. She was somewhere in the tens, ten to fifteen. She cracked the top ten a couple of times. But how did the how did together we be players who were like better than us? They were, had better forehands, better backhands, better serves, better overheads, better everything, right? We weren't better than them. So um I think it was really the fact that we really understood doubles and we always played the percentages and we had Um, I think the ability to perform under pressure because we consistently hit the right shot. We weren't trying to necessarily hit the winners. We were always trying to set up the partner to win the point. And we were always trying to force the error from our opponent, which is what I coach now. People play doubles and they they think they have to hit winners. They think they have to win the point. I was never thinking, how am I going to win the point? I was always thinking, how am I going to get Natasha to win this point for me? um so to diff- definitely a different mindset but very very valuable one when you're when you're playing doubles
0: yeah awesome stuff and that's uh, natasha zvereva for everybody just in case uh you didn't know um and so obviously you talked about you know you guys playing singles uh as well as doubles and so i'm just curious you know cuz you obviously I mean, most people know you for your doubles accomplishments, but you made the semis of Wimbledon in singles, you reached the quarters of the US Open twice in singles, and you reached number 17 in the world. So um, I was just wondering, how were you able to balance um, you know, your singles and doubles careers and like what type of ratio did you train singles to doubles?
2: Very good question. Um, so I trained 80-20 singles most of my career. Um, and because I was not too, I mean, I was, had better doubles results, but I was not a doubles specialist. Um, like you said, I always was playing like, you know, I had my ranking in singles was usually in the thirties. I had one year where it dropped. Um, like when Natasha and I were winning all those grand slams, 92, 93, my singles ranking suffered a little bit. Um, and it was just as a result of not having enough time to train for singles because what, what would happen, you know, it, like I would practice singles, until I, until I, um, you know, lost in, the, in a grand slam or lost in the tournament, then I would warm up. Just then you're basically warming up for your matches. is all you're doing, right? You're warming up for your matches. So when you know Friday, Saturday, Sunday, all you're doing is warming up for your matches, uh, for your doubles matches. And then on Monday you would have to fly and play on Tuesday singles. That became really difficult. And you know the, those years we were making ten to twelve finals, so. Um, of double so it was hard to keep the singles going but up to then like the whole time I was always trying to get my singles uh, ranking into the top um top 15 I, I always wanted to be top 10 and I was kind of striving to be top 10 even though I never achieved it um I had one year where I almost made the championships um I had to be 16 and I was 17 so I missed it by one um but yeah I was mostly I felt like if I worked on my singles my doubles game would be sharp so i would spend you know like i said 80 percent of the time working on my ground strokes my serve my volleys and then i would spend 20 percent of the time on patterns like hitting inside out forehands or hitting back in the back in line or playing court points
0: awesome Gigi. i really appreciate that that insight there and uh, just, you know, kind of drilling down a bit with this particular question, but I'm just curious, you know, because the audience really likes drills, if you maybe could uh, mention a couple doubles drills that you really enjoy and that you maybe used, um, you know, when during your practice.
2: Yeah, so so I played – when I was practicing for my cross court, for my doubles matches, I would hit cross court exclusively. Like I was telling people that, you know, in a – in a entire practice, I might hit four balls down the alley, maybe, and there would be like usually fed balls. Like if like it's just you never hit the ball down the alley. I mean, it was such a shot that I had, and I would use it if my partner was poaching. But I didn't just hit it to hit it because it it, it, it wrong shot. If my opponent was there, the point was over, and it was it's so difficult to to thread that needle. Um, so. So cross court. So Natasha and I would play points cross court. Like so, I would stand in the at side. She would stand on the at side, and she would hit. We would hit to each other. Then I would go to the do side, and then she would go to the deuce side of the baseline, and we would hit to each other. And they always played points. Like so, would warm up, and then we would just play games to ten with an imaginary line drawn between the uh, middle service line and the and the baseline. So we would cover our our half of the court, the opposite halves, and then then she would come up, and I would go back, and we'd do it again. And then play points cross court, half court. Um, again, with that imaginary line drawn through the middle of the court, and you'd have to cover that whole, that whole section um, of the court.
0: Gotcha, Gigi. It's great stuff. And so, obviously, you know, you had an amazing uh, pro career. And then, how did you end up coming to the decision to retire in 1997 at the age of 33?
2: So I retired because Natasha didn't want to play with me anymore. <laughs> <laughs> Like At the end of '96, we had broken up, um, and I started playing with uh, Arancha Sanchez Vicario, and she was playing with Meredith McGrath, but Meredith was hurt. So she didn't really have a partner at the beginning of the year. And I found out at the Hilton Head tournament, which is in April, that Arancha had agreed to play the rest of the year with Martina Hingis. So I got mad at Arancha, and obviously, you know, dumped her at that tournament. I was like, that's it, I'm not playing this tournament with you. So then I went to Natasha and I basically begged her to finish the year. I said, Natasha, you know, let's just get together again. I mean, we're still good. Like, we're we're still probably ranked number one in the world at the time. And um and she's like, All right, I'll finish the career. So we just got back together and we won immediately won the French and Wimbledon and then made the finals of the US Open. So I said to her, you know, let's keep going. I mean, we're like three grand slams or four. From, I don't. I don't know how many, but it seemed reachable from tying Martina and Pam for more, most grand slams by a team in history. Maybe six or seven. I don't know. Whatever it was, it seemed like it was something worth um, going for. And she uh, didn't want to. She wanted to play with Lindsay Davenport, who was a great doubles player in her own right. Um, but Lindsay and Natasha were not a good team because there was no finisher. They were both setters. Um Leza really wanted to be the finisher, and it was not her game. So the, the two of them start, played the next year, and they never. She never won another Grand Slam. And I didn't want to start the year playing with a new person because I um had just gone through that. And you know, and I was thirty three, and my eyes were starting to go. Like I have very bad eyesight. I'm almost blind. I'm almost legally blind. I have like you know the big like if I don't have my contacts on. I'm blind so and my eyes started to go I I felt like I wasn't seeing the ball as good and I was not reflexing the balls like I was before um and it seemed like what difference is it going to make in my life if I have 18 grand slams or 19 I already have with some other person I already have 17 so what else is there to strive for so I decided to um, retire and pursue something else
0: Yeah, it makes a lot of sense, Gigi. And you, you had so much success already that, uh, I think perfect timing for you. And so can you talk about, you know, your life after pro tennis, your decisions on, I mean, I know that you coached a little bit. You coached Sam, Sam, uh, Stoser, Lisa Raymond, Renee Stubbs. And you also, like you mentioned, you went back to school, uh, to get your BA in psychology and your MBA. So can you kind of talk about the, those, those decisions there?
2: Yeah. So the, very first thing I did was um, I tried to do anything I could that would give me a new identity. I mean, that was really the driving force because I did not want to be Gigi Fernandez, the tennis player anymore. So at first, I went I went away from the game for years, and I um, reluctantly came back to it uh, as a coach of the University of South Florida tennis team. I moved to Tampa, uh, and then. And then subsequently coached uh, Lisa Raymond and Sam Stoser and Renee Stubbs, like you said. Lisa and Sam won the U.S. Open in 2005, and that was very rewarding. Um, I also coached Puerto Rican Fed Cup team. Uh, in the meantime, was, was getting my degree, but all along I was trying to become a mom, and I was trying to do that really hard and um, very long process that ended up, you know, working for me, and um, got pregnant with Carson and Madison. And then after that then my life really became about being a mom. They're turning nine in three weeks. So for the last nine years, that's been my main goal. In the meantime, I, by luck, uh, became the director of tennis at a club in Connecticut that was right next door to where my kids went to school and started teaching adults and then really realized how much I enjoy teaching and how passionate I am about helping people get better at tennis and, Um, so, so yeah, so then, uh, so then that kind of put me back full throttle into the game and, uh, and for the last two years, my life's goal has been to share my knowledge of doubles, which I've been doing, you know, through various, various platforms online and traveling to clubs and doing clinics and doing pro trainings and all kinds of different ways that, um, that I share my knowledge with people who want to, who want to learn from me so it's it's been a fun 20 years
0: <laughs> yeah Gigi, i mean really appreciate that you're um you know finding ways to give back to the tennis community and educating them on on you know the best principles for uh for winning in in tennis especially with respect to doubles and so just wanted to ask you you know kind of what the gg method is all about and uh and your other projects such as uh, doubles tv as well
2: yeah, so doubles.tv is the online platform that holds all my dolls knowledge. So, uh, www.dolls.tv.com not not .com, sorry. Doubles.tv, um is the platform where everything is is posted. Uh, so the GG method is the main program there, and I created that not only from what I knew about dolls uh, for my years on tour, but more importantly, the you know six or seven years that I spent coaching recreational players. Because as you know, like uh, the t- teaching a pro, or teaching an amateur is completely The skill set is completely different. So, so I had to adjust what I knew about doubles, and actually learned a lot of new things. Um, how to teach so that level um, can be really different than how to teach how you teach the pros. So, so the DG method is based on um, the five key steps in doubles, which are positioning, court coverage, serve, return, and shot selection, and each one of those. Um, I have you know, have my thoughts on it, and uh, about ten to fifteen videos for each one of those steps in uh, the GG uh, method online. And then uh, once you complete the GG method, then you are able to enter the GG method classroom, which is a subscription-based service where every week we delve and in, delve into a different concept and we explore it more from every possible angle and try to really get people really understand the game. Not just what's happening on the court, but also off the court, the mental part and fitness and strategy and competition, and how do you get ready for matches and how do you close how to lead and how you know so many so much information in there that's uh, coming from somebody who knows you know because there's a lot of people out there teaching online that have kind of suspect credentials um so you have to be really careful who you listen to when you're um, when you're choosing your online uh you know, know, online content deliverer, right? So, so yeah, that's, that's, that's my, my gig right now. So I don't uh, teach anymore. I'm not on the court. Uh, I still do traveling clinics. I go to clubs and um, bring the G method to members and people who want to learn from me. And I also um, bring people to grand slams. I have a grand slam package for Wimbledon that I put together with grand slam tennis tours. That's doing really well. So I'll be there and um, and I go to the US Open and I you know I stay as involved in the game as I can um, I'm the coach of the New York Empire world Team tennis team we play out of the National Tennis Center in July and and I just give back because I feel like it's my responsibility um, you know tennis gave me so much and I see so many players leave the game and never come back and Uh, They have all this knowledge wasted in their brain and I just didn't want to be one of those players. I really felt like I wanted to share and help others um, love tennis as much as I I loved it. And if I could just give back a little bit, then I would just feel so much better about myself. So that's what I do.
0: That's awesome, Gigi. And side note, I'll definitely have to... Uh, watch you, you all when you play against the castles in WTT. That would be great to see yes. you there. Um, for sure. Um, but yeah, I mean, I just want to highlight what you mentioned, which is, you know, whenever you're trying to become, uh, you know, great at anything in your field, you always want to look to, um, you know, the experts, the people who've been through, uh, the toughest tests. And, and obviously, you know, somebody like Gigi, who's won 17 Grand Slam doubles titles, uh, is, Probably one of the best resources you can find, you know, for doubles instruction and strategy. And it sounds like, um, you know, doubles TV is a very comprehensive, uh, course, obviously. And um, just wanted to ask too, you know, like what types of improvements have you seen, Gigi, in in players that have gone through uh the doubles TV?
2: So, so I have a lot of people that, um, over five thousand people have watched the Gigi method. Um, I sold it. I was selling it through Fuzzy Yellow Balls and I have so many testimonials from people of every level from, you know, three O's to five fives, uh, saying that, you know, they thought they, especially, you know, the better players thought they knew everything that was to know about dolls and come to find out that they didn't, because what's, what's interesting. is like, you really don't know what you don't know. And I like to tell people that because when, when you're an expert at something, you know, you know, and I know it really well, but when people think they know doubles and a lot of times it's because they don't know what they don't know. Um, so I encourage people to check it out. I mean, I have a lot, there's a lot of free resources too. like, I have a online quiz at G, G. Fernandez tennis, um, that you can take. And if you think, you know, doubles, check that out, gives you your doubles IQ. If your IQ is below 85, then you probably could learn a little bit more about, you know, high percentage winning doubles and what's really going to win a match in the end and what shots to cover and what shots you should be attempting to hit and how to beat uh, the pushers, how to beat the lobbers, how to beat the people with power, how, you know, how to position yourself at the net. So you never passed, um, how to hold serve, uh, et cetera, et cetera. So there's just so much information there for people. And so I encourage them to go check it out.
0: For sure. Gigi. Yeah. And uh, Gigi was kind enough to, uh, to uh, put out a, a free uh, video training series uh, that you can check out at TennisFoz.com slash And we'll have that link uh, below uh, and, and in the show notes for today's episode. So uh, again, you know, highly encourage you all to check uh, that out. Um, yeah, that,
2: that was how to never lose your serve, right? Right,
0: right. Yeah, exactly. that's
2: a, that's a really good um, little free video training series. So go ahead and check that one out.
0: For sure. For sure, everybody. And and just a couple uh closing questions, Gigi, if you don't mind. Um, love to ask my um, guests. So for, what are three books that you'd gift to a friend to help them become a better tennis player?
2: You know, I've been reading this question and I you you stopped me on this one. First of all, it's very hard to read about tennis, which is why when I was deciding how to deliver the Gigi Method, I decided to do it on video. Um, you know, to read a paragraph that would sound like when you're standing on the deuce court and your opponent's on the ad court and you serve to the backhand, the deuce side player on the net and the far side player on the ad. Like when you start, you have to think so hard to make your point, to get your point across. So so I would say to become a tennis player, you should not be reading books. You should be watching uh, online video. You can watch doubles matches. Um, you can watch – in. Uh, Commentated doubles matches listen to the commentators they're a lot of times giving good tips one thing that i'm getting ready to roll out is uh, a pro point analysis where i've recorded some tennis matches and i will analyze it to the recreational player like this is what they did good in this point is what they did bad um so as far as strategy books and these kinds of books i'd say there's nothing that i know of there might be out there i would i would Lean more towards mental books, like things that can help you overcome um, mind deficiencies, like how to handle anger if you have anger issues or uh, how to be mentally tough. Um, Those kind of books might might um, be helpful, but I can't name any. Isn't that terrible? I'm gonna have to give back to you on
0: that. <laughs> oh, no worries. No worries. I mean, yeah, no, great point. Because today, um, you know, the learning is highly facilitated by uh, video training, like Gigi's, uh, you know, training and things like that. And, you know, I guess maybe a book like Inner Game of Tennis would probably be good as far as like the mental game and stuff like that. But yeah, no, I totally... Uh, hear what you're saying there Gigi um, what is one big myth and you already mentioned one but what's what's one big myth that a lot of tennis players and or coaches believe today about tennis
2: you mean that follow the ball
0: yeah that was the one I was thinking that you mentioned
2: yeah. I, I I feel like we do a service to players when, teach, when we teach them to follow the ball because they take it to the wrong degree like you follow the ball in singles because you have the whole court to cover in those you don't follow the ball and if you're gonna follow the ball, you only you follow it when your opponent's off the alley. But we have coaches telling players to shadow or mirror their opponent, which means when your opponent's in the alley or shifts to the alley, you have to shift to the alley with them. That's that's so wrong. I like I don't even know how how many times I have to say that's wrong. And that it's wrong for so many reasons and puts the team in such a compromising position. Um, so, so yeah, that's my big pet peeve. You know, it's, uh, the other one is that, that the doubles court is your half, my half. So if my my half of the court is the half I'm in and your half of the court is your half, the half you're in, that's a myth. It's actually whoever's in front, it's their half. Whoever's behind gets, gets the back half. So if you're in front of your partner, the ball is yours, regardless of whether it's on their side or not, if you can get it. Right. And then if, if the person behind and is responsible for, for the lobs. So there's, there's two there.
0: Awesome. Appreciate that, Gigi. And so uh, one final question that i um, like to ask you uh, that I asked my guests is what is one key tip that you can give our audience to help them improve their tennis games?
2: Watch the Gigi method. Yes. It's <laughs> <laughs> right. just not one thing is, um, you know, there's just so many things for doubles specifically. I mean, if you're if you're thinking about something from the technical perspective, I'd say watch the ball. And it sounds so simple, but I don't think I don't think recreational players watch the ball at all. I mean, they like if I when I'm working with recreational players and and I ask them where do they start tracking the ball, usually it's when the ball has already crossed the net. So you need to track the ball on the other side of the net. So watch the ball come off your opponent's string, and then start deciding what you're going to do with it. When, it, when it's over there and not when it's already up on you. So, so wash the ball sounds simple, but I don't mean wash the ball when it's on your side. I mean wash the ball when it's on the other side.
0: Yeah, I really appreciate you being specific about that. And I think that will really help everybody who's listening if they uh, implement uh, Gigi's advice there. Uh, Gigi, you, oh, go ahead. Be real,
2: because when you're playing doubles, um, you're constantly looking for positioning errors. You're looking for your opponent to be in a positioning error. And Recreational players, no, they don't. Not only do they not watch the ball on the other side, but they don't watch what's happening on the other side. So it's a hard thing to do. It's you know four fives and above have developed this skill, but three five four Os they don't have the ability or they haven't been taught to watch the other side. And you can watch the other side if you get good at watching the ball come from the other side. Then you'll start to notice where the players are positioned on the other side. And then if you catch a positioning error then you want to attack that positioning error. But it starts with watching the ball and your opponents on the other side.
0: Awesome stuff, Gigi. Uh, Just uh, amazing information. I just want to um, educate the uh, listeners on where they can get in touch with you, whether that's online or in person or or to check out your stuff.
2: Yeah, I mean, if you go to doubles.tv, there's stuff there that's a subscription based program, but if you can also go to Gigi Fernandez tennis and everything at Gigi Fernandez tennis is free. Um, There's the quizzes there. And then you can, if you send an email there, it comes to me. Uh, If you have, if you want me to come to your club or work with your team or travel um, and do a two day camp, which I do um, just shoot me an email, Gigi at Gigi Fernandez tennis, or go to either of the websites and, uh, and I'm pretty easy to find these days. Mm -hmm. Uh, I mean, I even give out my cell phone, but then people start calling me at <laughs> yeah. weird times. So, um, so, so yeah, I'm, I'm accessible. I'm on, I'm sitting on my computer all day, uh, responding to my, the members questions about doubles and, you know, I have about three or 400 players that I'm working with right now online and I'd like to have more. So, um, so yeah, go ahead and check out the various uh, offerings and hopefully, um, if you see me at a Grand Slam, stop and say hello. I was at Indian Wells and so many people stopped me and said um, they have the GG method and they love it and and that made me feel really good. So if I see you, uh, if you ever see me at a tournament, don't be shy. I'm your coach. So feel free to come up to me and, and say, hey, I'm one of your students and uh, and I hope to uh, catch you somewhere.
0: Awesome, GG. Well, and and definitely everybody check out uh, all the resources that GG has uh, cre- created for you, all the wonderful uh Ways to learn uh tennis and um also uh you can check out uh the free I Never Lose Your Serve video series at TennisFiles.com slash Gigi. But uh, Gigi, I just want to congratulate you on a really uh, incredible career and want to thank you for all the contribu- contributions you've made to the tennis community. And we always uh, love, you know, uh, learning from you and uh, also extremely excited that you are going to be on Tennis Summit 2018 at the end of April as well. But um, just, you know, on the whole, again, thanks so much for everything. And I really appreciate you being on the Tennis Files podcast.
2: Thanks, Thanks for having me, and uh, thank you, everybody, for listening.
0: Thanks, Gigi. All right, I hope you enjoyed my interview with Gigi Fernandez. It was definitely an honor to have her on the show today, and uh, I hope you all learned a lot about, um, you know, her career and how she uh, overcame a lot of obstacles to become uh, an incredible uh, champion and win so many Grand Slam titles and other accolades. Uh, and I'd also really appreciate it if you all would leave a review for the Tennis Falls podcast. Uh, I really would appreciate for you to just leave uh, an honest uh, thought uh, on, you know, how the show is doing, how you like the show uh, and things like that. So it obviously helps with, um, you know, visibility for uh, the podcast. And you can do that by leaving a review on iTunes or any podcast app that you use to listen to the show. And I also highly encourage you to check out uh, Gigi's uh, free video series that we mentioned. And you can do that at TennisFiles.com Gigi. And as I often like to do, I'd like to leave you uh, with a quote before I uh, end the podcast. And today's quote is by Dennis DeYoung. And uh, he said, winners are losers who got up and gave it one more try. All right, I hope you enjoyed the show today, and I look forward to you checking out the next episode of the Tennis Files podcast. Take care, guys.
1: Thanks for listening to the Tennis Files podcast. For more tips to help you improve your tennis game, visit TennisFiles.com.